So we're here this week uh, to study the Buddhist teachings on emptiness. <clears throat> and in the Mahayana Buddhist tradition, emptiness, uh, the word emptiness is really big. Uh, it refers to, it's, the, it's a word that's used to refer to a whole school of thought, a whole philosophy, um, a central philosophy of the Mahayana. In the Theravada, uh, teaching, teachings on emptiness are there, but the word is not used as a reference point for a central philosophy for Theravada and Buddhism. You can make an argument that Theravada teachings on emptiness is pretty central, um, but uh, I think if you look at the classical teachings of Theravada, um, those teachings could work just fine without any reference to the word emptiness. Uh, they don't depend on emptiness for their, for their coherence, for their, their depth, for their liberating possibility. But in Mahayana, it's really a central thing. And I think coming from the... Because here in the West, we're so much influenced by all of Buddhism, uh, the idea of Buddhism and emptiness has become really uh, closely connected and, and many people are fascinated by the teachings on emptiness. But when you go in to study uh, what emptiness means, um, there are many different teachings on emptiness itself. And in fact, in the history of Buddhism, there have been a lot of debates uh, about what emptiness really is. And different people, people have different opinions. And in fact, some Buddhists have actually been very critical of the, some Mahayana Buddhists have been very critical of the teachings on emptiness. It isn't like there's this you know, consensus, this is all good, emptiness. And the, the common criticism has been that it's a form of nihilism, uh, which denies the value of anything. And you see that sometimes popping up in uh, kind of some of the more unfortunate interpretations of emptiness um, in, <clears throat> in certain circles. Uh, some people have taken the teachings of emptiness and generalized, universalized them that uh, nothing has any absolute meaning or value, that there's nothing really here at all. <clears throat> And so it lends itself to what's called <clears throat> antinomianism, which is a fancy word for um, no moral compass, no ethical foundation for how, what's important to do. And so you're welcome to do anything you want. And it's all empty, it doesn't matter. Uh, and the extreme version of that is uh, you hear there have been some teachings coming out of Japan, like samurai teachings, and, um, and even later up to, towards World War II, where Buddhist teachers were saying it was fine to kill because um, uh, the, the person you kill, the sword, and the, and the killer are all empty. Nothing's really being killed. So, you know, it, it goes in all kinds of directions which are sometimes not so useful, I think. But at the same time, its uh, teachings of emptiness um, are very inspiring and quite beautiful. Uh, one of the beautiful, most poetic takes of it in the modern world is uh, that offered by Thich Nhat Hanh. He has a very different teachings on it than what you find in the Theravadan canon and, and what you find in you know, a lot of other places in Mahayana. But uh, his emptiness is quite full. And uh, he has you look at an orange and he says the orange is empty, but it's full of, because it it's, it's it's arises together, it's there because of many, many causes and conditions when you look into the empty nature of the orange, what you see is you see um, the sun that 
that uh, shown on the plant, on the orange plant. You see the plant itself. You see the water that fed it. You see the farmer that tended to that uh, orange tree. You see the people that picked it. You see the the people who transported it to where you are. And you see so many different elements. You know everything kind of the whole inter- interconnected ecology of our lives uh, somehow is inferred through the idea that something is empty. So the emptiness is quite uh, that emptiness is quite full, and in some ways it's quite inspiring. Um, the um, I found I, I was first introduced to the emptiness teachings in Zen, in Japanese Zen teaching, and it was very inspiring to me and meaningful for me the teachings of emptiness. At the same time, it was also confusing, and I could see in the Zen communities uh, a lot of confusion around the teaching of emptiness that took the form of. Um, um, it was really hard to pinpoint what the teaching really was, what it really is. And some people had it and some people didn't. And if you didn't have it, you didn't want to admit it. <laughs> and so you would never ask a question about, you know, what is this emptiness thing? Or I don't quite understand because if you ask a question, then you didn't have it. And the important thing was to have it, whatever it was, the enlightenment or something. And so... Um, and then, uh, in a small way, or, uh, well, I saw it a little bit in the Zen community that I was at, but I saw it in a really big way in the, when I did my dissertation on the early perfection of wisdom literature. Uh, I've been, I, I had contact with it, and there was, it was kind of that, that literature was kind of idealized. It was said to be literature that really championed emptiness in the Mahayana. Uh, it was a whole series of texts that were written, uh, starting around probably around the first century and um, about the perfection of wisdom. But it was often said to be a, a teaching about emptiness. Emptiness was the heart of it, that the real perfection of wisdom was insight into emptiness. And um, there's been a lot of, in the West, a lot of scholarly works studying the perfection of wisdom, looking at the profundity of it, looking at the emptiness teaching of it, the philosophy of it. And so I, I went back and studied the key core text of um, the emptiness, this emptiness school, this, this perfection of wisdom literature, and there was a, all kinds of things that said about emptiness. And you could take out those selections, those sections of the text and just study those in isolation of the rest of the text. But if you, but if you study the text, the whole thing, or, or study what was sandwiched between the emptiness teaching, uh, there was a phenomenal, what I call a mythology, a phenomenal mythology of good and evil. And empty, emptiness philosophy lended itself to um, everything is empty in that's this particular school and therefore it doesn't make sense to talk about causality cause and effect and so since everything is empty you don't go into your own inner psychology to understand your contribution to suffering there's no need to because suffering is empty and if suffering is empty there's no need to investigate more deeply you just have to see the emptiness of your suffering or the emptiness of self or the emptiness of things. And so there's a way in which the emptiness teaching lent itself to a lack of investigation. Just look clearly right here, direct pointing to emptiness here and now as it is. And therefore you don't have to understand anything else. And, um, and so you find in this literature, the perfection of wisdom literature, a kind of dropping of the psychological sophistication of the earlier tradition 
where there was a lot of emphasis on causality, understanding the cause and effect and how things came into play, in particular the cause and effect that led, the psychological cause and effect that contributed to um, suffering and the freedom from suffering. Now if you don't have, uh, if you don't have, if you don't have access or understanding of the inner psychology of what gives birth to cause and effect, what gives birth to suffering and lack of suffering, you still need, I think human mind still wants to have an explanation, wants to understand somehow. And so sandwiched in between the teachings of the perfection of wisdom, the emptiness teaching, was uh, very dramatic descriptions of how really what, uh, what was really the primary influence on a person's path to liberation or lack of it was the role of Mara. But not Mara as a personification of inner psychological forces, but Mara as a real figure, a devil, a cosmic figure. And in, in this text, it talks about this dramatic cosmic battle that's been going on for millennia, you know, between Buddha, this cosmic Buddha, and this cosmic Mara. And anything, and really, the, the, anything that's going to happen in our path is really under the influence of these cosmic figures. And it's quite a juxtaposition in these texts between studying the, you know, the rarefied teaching of emptiness in isolation. Western philosophers have spent endless books about this teaching and comparing it to Western science and Western philosophy and Whitehead and all, all these different things. And, um, and then the stuff that's left out. But what I saw, what my interpretation is that if you, don't, if, you, if you focus too much on emptiness, saying everything is empty in a certain way, without understanding causality, then people tend to uh, rely on mythology to explain things. And this text then felt it has tremendous uh, kind of popping up of the role of mythology in a way that we don't see in the earlier texts. And the same thing I saw at the San Francisco Zen Center, where there's also kind of the emptiness teaching. And there was a kind of not, this kind of sophistication in looking at causality and the inner cause and effect and taking responsibility for what goes on here more deeply. And there was a kind of very mild mythology there. That, and the mild mythology was, we have the true teaching here. And if you leave here and go somewhere else, you don't have it there. You've left the true fold. And I think that you don't tend to kind of come up with these ideas of this is the truth and the only truth and other people don't have it. If you really understand causality, understand, be able to look at yourself more deeply and find in yourself the cause and conditions for the way you cling and that uh, you suffer. You're less likely to cling and create ideas like that if you really have this inner mindfulness and study of what's going on in a deeper way. Is that making some sense? You? Um, this is not to say that the emptiness teaching in Mahayana is not profound and meaningful, but it's to say that it's used, it's the function of those teachings is very interesting to ask. It's one thing to have a teaching, it's another thing to look at the unintended consequences of those teachings and how it plays out in the community and, and uh, the people who hold those teachings. And also there's a diversity of teachings we want to emphasize here. So if we go back, so what I'd like to do today in this talk is to give you a little bit the context for the empty and emptiness teaching of the Theravadan tradition and where it fits in the wider kind of um, 
approach to the spiritual life that this tradition has. Because without contextualizing it in there, it's easy maybe to misunderstand. Um, <clears throat> and um, so I'd like to do that first to read um, a story, if I may. At the beginning of every year, <clears throat> the abbess would meet with the new monks and nuns who had joined the monastery the preceding year. Pack your bags, she would say. I'm taking you on a pilgrimage to the holy sites of Buddhism. Knowing of the pilgrimages to the places in India where the Buddha was born, enlightened, first taught, and died, the new monastics couldn't believe their good fortune, especially because after a few months in the monastery, some of the new residents were bored, some were restless, and some were unsure why they were there. On the day of departure, all the older monks and nuns in the monastery stood by the gate to send off the abbess and the new monastics. Leading the group, the abbess first took them to a hospital. There they visited the sick. Then the abbess took the group to an old age home. The new monastics, many who were quite young, were amazed at the ravages of old age. The abbess then took them to a hospice. In the hours there, they spent time with people in all stages of dying. The last few hours were spent in silent vigil with someone who had just died. The abbess then led the group back to the monastery. There they visited a nun sick in the infirmary. The new monastics were struck by the sparkle of joy which radiated through the tired eyes of the patient. Then they went to visit the oldest resident of the monastery, a 96-year-old monk. The group was awed by the love and acceptance that shone forth from the toothless, frail, and stooped men. Next, the abbess took them to the hospice wing of the monastery. Here they were introduced to a nun who only days away from her death radiated a palpable peace that lingered within them for hours after. Finally, the abbess took the monastics to the meditation hall. When they were all seated, she said, you have seen the holy sites. These are the sites that motivated the Buddha to awaken. Once you are awakened, you will no longer be troubled when you encounter old age, sickness, and death. So the issue in the early Buddhism or in Theravadan Buddhism is not to understand emptiness as if emptiness is the ultimate good, but rather to understand the nature of our suffering and to encounter suffering, to realize our suffering in a particular way, and then be motivated to find a way to be free of that suffering. I see it for me as a, as a not only a movement to be to release from the unnecessary burdens of suffering in our life, distress and fear, and but also a, a beautiful movement of compassion, that uh, there's this compassionate concern for how difficult it is to be a human being and the difficulties that come with our life, and, to, and really kind of a direct addressing of these difficulties and trying to understand how is it we can live a life where we're not uh, oppressed by sickness, old age, or death, not oppressed by the experience of life, but rather find a way to live free or free of suffering, free of 
of uh, that oppression or struggle with it, with this life. And so, uh, what is it that takes to help us become free? And um, and this is the question I think that the early tradition is trying to address. And at the time of the Buddha, there were many people addressing that question, I think, just as they are people doing it today. I think it's a fundamental concern of human beings, is how do we be, how do we be happy? How do we find, to be, find out to be happy? And people look in all kinds of directions for the path, the possibility of happiness, of freedom from suffering. And at the time of the Buddha, uh, many people were doing that, and it could be subsumed under the issue of causality. What's the cause that leads to suffering? What's the cause that leads to freedom from suffering? And um, there were many answers to that question. One of the answers was that your happiness and unhappiness is depending, dependent on the will of the gods. It has nothing to do with what you can do. You can't do anything except sacrifice to the gods, make offerings to God, pray to them. And then this wonderful pantheon of Indian gods would look kindly upon you if you slaughtered the lamb, the sheep, or the something, and made offerings in the fire, all kinds of things you could do. And uh, so it had a lot to do with the gods or the kind of spiritual forces of the universe that you, if you behave properly towards them in rituals, and ritual ways, um, then uh, somehow, you know, the spiritual forces, the the gods would somehow look upon you favorably. And as we know, there are, this is not an uncommon attitude that many people in the history of the world, and even to this day, still have, that somehow they, they assign their happiness to external forces. Um, people who are more sophisticated, I don't know if more sophisticated, but uh, people who are maybe not so theistically inclined will still do it, and they'll say, you know, it's my parents. <laughs> They're the ones. <laughs> Or it's my friends, or my community, or my people, and it's up to them to make me happy or not happy. And so we assign it to elsewhere. Another uh, place that people uh, looked for causality was uh, to say that um, things are predetermined. Uh, somehow uh, there, there's no ch- nothing you can do at all. That somehow at the beginning of the universe or the cosmos, that things were set in motion in a particular way. And, uh, or other ways they were set in motion. And things just have to unfold the way that they're going to unfold. It's predetermined. And, and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, if you walk out of the hall here and stub your toe on the sidewalk, uh, that was meant to happen. And there's nothing you could, do, could have done to have changed that. It was bound to happen. Um, if you thought that you were going to stub your toe because I said so, and, um, and therefore took a different route, uh, that was predetermined too. You know, that I would tell you and that you would react that way. And, you know, basically there's nothing that uh, you can do but somehow just go along with that. One form of that predetermined approach that existed at the time of the Buddha was <clears throat> you just have to go along and exhaust the momentum that was set in motion in the past uh, for your suffering and, and, and just kind of play it out and just, you know, like a spring. Your life is a spring that got wound up and you just have to help support the spring to unwind. And when it unwinds, then you'll be liberated. So again, it's, there's suffering and freedom suffering have very little to do with yourself, and maybe there's nothing you can do, except just trust the predetermined uh, nature of things, and, um, and then everything will 
unfold the way it's supposed to unfold. Another theory at the time of the Buddha was that um, um, things are not predetermined, but they're totally random. <laughs> and uh, things just, you know, just happen for random reasons. And sometimes you're, you're happy, sometimes you're not. Some people are born in happy circumstances, some people not. And it's just, you know, nothing you can do about it as well. Those are some of the theories that the Buddha talks about that existed at his time and that he was critical of. He said, no, that's not where you look. <clears throat> and in that context of looking for where the responsibility lies, we looked, uh, the Buddha said, look at yourself. That the causal, uh, that you have a role to play in your happiness and unhappiness, your freedom and your liberation. That, and then a big part of what the Buddha said was to understand that causal chain that you're part of and that you can contribute to in effect. And that this is really important to do. And this is what, the, in terms of relationship to emptiness, what the Dalai Lama has said. Um, he said that uh, before you understand emptiness, you should understand uh, causality and karma. Before you understand even not self-teaching, you should understand causality and cause and effect. Because as Dalai Lama said, unless you do that, you won't understand per, your, uh, your responsibility, take pers personal responsibility. And I've seen in, in certain circles the way that emptiness philosophy has lent itself to not taking responsibility. And if you don't take responsibility, I think it's pretty soon mythology creeps in, superstition creeps in to explain things. So uh, this early tradition then focuses on cause and effect. And so understand, and, um, and so a big part of why this tradition focuses on mindfulness, being present, paying attention, is that we can start seeing where the places of choice are. We can see where we can interface, interact with the causal chain of how things unfold and make a difference to how things unfold. So a heightened sensitivity to what goes on. If we become heightenedly sensitive, then maybe we don't need philosophy, even a philosophy of emptiness. So I'd like to read another, another story. After lunch one day, the abbess and the visiting philosophy professor went for a walk along the river that passed by the monastery. <clears throat> Being a hot day, they eventually sat down to cool off under the shade of a lar large tree. The professor asked, I am interested in learning Buddhist philosophy. Could you tell me some of the fundamental doctrines of your religion? Well, said the abbess, I don't think I can help you much. You see, we don't rely on any philosophy at the monastery. But, continued the professor, everyone, consciously or unconsciously, has a philosophy with which to make sense of their life and their purpose. It is different in the monastery, replied the abbess. At the monastery, we, we rely on awareness, not doctrines. But, insisted the professor, you must have a philosophy which explains the importance of being aware. After pausing to consider how best to respond, the abbess said, as we walked along, we were both aware of how hot, sweaty, and tired we'd become from our walk. We did not need a philosophy to tell us the benefits of sitting down here in the shade. 
if, it, if you put your hand on a hot stove, you don't need a philosophy to pull the hand away. If a baby is crying from hunger, the need to feed the child is obvious to the parent. Buddhist practice does not depend on having a set of doctrines or beliefs. Rather, it depends on being aware of what brings release from suffering. Rather than being taught Buddhist philosophy, at the monastery, the monks and nuns are trained to develop an acutely refined awareness. With such sensitivity, ultimate liberation is as natural as sitting down in the shade on a hot day. So this acute sensitivity, this heightened awareness of what's happening here, bringing us here, being present here, we start seeing with greater depth and clarity our suffering, and that's the bad news of Buddhism, right? Come and know your suffering <laughs> and know it well. The good news of that is as you experience and see it directly, then you can start seeing what your contribution is to the suffering. And this is the, really the key, I think, from my point of view, one of the, the key approach to finding the Buddhist path of practice is to see well, how am I contributing to the suffering? It's possible and sometimes appropriate to see what other people's roles are in how we suffer and sometimes do something about that. <clears throat> but if we want to find the path of practice, the path of practice is found by looking at our contribution to the suffering. And so in a place like this, at Spirit Rock, it's set up to kind of emphasize looking at that aspect of it. So it asks the question, what am I doing here? What am I contributing to the suffering that's going on? Now you might want to say, well, this is kind of bad news and depressing. Uh, but in fact, this is what the Buddha emphasized uh, as really central to his whole enterprise was suffering and freedom from suffering. Um, so as it says in the study guide, both formally and now, what I teach is suffering and the cessation of suffering. Not philosophy, not a belief, but rather behavior, actions, doing something, looking in the stream of cause and effect and beginning to change that stream in different directions. To look at how we are in relationship to what's going on. Because things go on all the time. Um, but look at how we are and understanding how we can change and modify or adjust how we are. So how we are supports us in the process of being free of suffering or becoming liberated, becoming awake. So, um, you know, so if I do walk out of here and stub my toe on the sidewalk, um, and I'm suffering, then the task of finding the path of practice is to say, well, how do I contribute to this suffering? Not how do I write a letter to the Teachers Council of Spirit Rock for why the sidewalk is buckled or something. How could you make a sidewalk like that? You might do that, but you don't find the path in that letter. What you really find the path is, is maybe at the anger you have towards yourself or the anger you have for someone else that so you're holding on, to, I'm holding on to the anger. And so to look at how do I, you know, what am I doing here? And then how can I, you know, how am I? And then what can I do about it? And one of the things we can do about it is to not live in the anger 
or the clinging, but rather step back out of it and live in the awareness of the anger. And that's a radical different thing to do, to live in the midst of our clinging and acting on it and being pushed around by it and all that, versus stepping out of it, out of its orbit, and looking back at it. Not to criticize it, not to be upset by it, not to be aversive towards it, but not to live in it. Another possibility is to say, I think I can let go of my anger or my fear or my clinging or my resistance. I can let go. Another thing to possible to do is say, you know, it's not useful to go around simmering about, you know, the broken sidewalk where I stubbed my toe. I think it might be, might, might be helpful is to consider how to be generous. I think maybe I should go back and fix it. Remove that rock so someone, no one else stubs their toe and do a generous act or be compassionate. What's the compassionate thing to do here? Maybe put up a sign that says, watch, watch where you walk. You know, as opposed to kind of staying with the anger. So there, there's a kind of way in which Buddhism focuses on what do you do, what can you do to make a difference? So then you have this quote number three where um, there's a little summary of what the teachings of the Buddhas are. This is the teachings of the Buddha, it says. That's something to get your attention. And it says, Do, uh, doing no evil Engaging in what's skillful and purifying one's mind, this is the teachings of the Buddhas. So again, this is not a belief system per se, it's not a philosophy per se, but rather an instruction for action, for how to behave, for what to do, how to take responsibility for causality, for how we are. So avoiding certain behaviors which cause harm and suffering for others. And do those things which, here the word is kusala, skillful sometimes translated into English as wholesome, do those things which are, I like to translate it as helpful. Do those things which are helpful um, in your mind, in your life. So there is a choice, there is an action that's done. Sometimes those actions are done in physical actions, sometimes they're done in mental actions, sometimes in verbal actions. Do those mental actions that are skillful, that are helpful. And then purify your mind. Purify your mind of those forces that bring you suffering. Because if, you know, we're not looking how to suffer better. Be mindful, relaxed, accept everything as it is so you can suffer really well. But rather, um, be mindful, present, be, so that the forces of suffering, the way that you cling or cause suffering, you can somehow not have operate so your mind can be free of that, empty of that. In this, in this quote called pur- purified of it. Um, and then I think quote four is interesting. This is from the last days of the Buddha's life. And he said, those matters I discovered and taught should be thoroughly learned by you, practiced, developed, cultivated, so that this holy life may endure for a long time, that it may be for the benefit and happiness of many, out of compassion for the world, for the benefit and happiness of devas and humans. So just that part of this, of this first sentence is, I think, very interesting. Um, this is the Buddha, Buddha's going to tell us what he discovered, what, you know, uh, and what he's been teaching for 45 years. What did the Buddha discover? What was unique to the Buddha? He's going to tell us now. Um, and then he says, uh, uh, 
there's actions you should do. There's behavior that you should do. Don't just kind of believe it. But he's, he's going to tell you, so there's something you can do. Um, you can practice, develop, and cultivate it. He's not telling you, believe this. Um, and then, then he suggests this, beautiful, I think, quite beautiful thing. I have compassion for the world. Do this. Not just for you, but for your own sake. So what are the matters I discovered? They are the four foundations of mindfulness, the four right efforts, the four roads to power, the five spiritual faculties, the five powers, the seven factors of awakening, and the noble eightfold path. In my reading of this, again, this is not a creed. It's not a belief system. But it's a series of practices, things you can do, and qualities of mind, of heart. They get cultivated and grow when we do those practices. So again, the focus is on what you can do, the practices you can have, and what happens as you do those practices. So again, we're not, so, so again, the causality is, keeps coming back here to us, looking at ourselves and what goes on. Um, the Buddha's foster mother came to the Buddha and asked him to give, uh, to teach her in brief what his teachings were. So his foster mother is an important person, right? You know, if, if one of your parents came and said, you know, I, just, I give you five minutes, tell me the deepest, most central thing if you're under, you know, that's most important for you in your life. Um, you know, you kind of would get it pretty condensed. You know, it's an important thing. You don't just say, you know, just be a good person. So this is what the Buddha said to his foster mother. Um, or, uh, as for th- those qualities of which you may know, these qualities lead to dispassion, not to passion, to being unfettered, not to being fettered, to shedding, not to accumulating, to modesty, not to self-aggrandizement, to contentment, not to discontent, to seclusion, not to entanglement, to arouse persistence, not to laziness, to being unburdensome, not to being burdensome. You may definitely hold this is the Dhamma, this is the Vinaya, this is the teacher's instruction. So again, here, the, his point, you know, he's pointing that the heart, you know, kind of point, very direct pointing to something that's very important, central, and it's not a belief system, but rather has to do with uh, uh, behaviors or qualities of being or how we are, and be able to discern the difference between a polarity, between those things which are helpful and those things which are unhelpful. And here the idea is that it's helpful uh, to be um, dispassionate in the appropriate way, um, to be unfettered, to letting go, to shedding, to modesty or certain kind of healthy humility, to contentment, to a certain kind of healthy seclusion, to arouse persistence, uh, and to being unburdensome for uh, to, to anyone, not to creating trouble for people. I think it's a beautiful list. How can this be kind of a central teaching of one of the great religious figures of humankind? I think because, not because he's just kind of teaching ethics, but rather it's by, it's by engaging in the cultivation of these inner qualities that is the path that leads to increasing liberation from the forces within us that cause suffering. The opposite of these good qualities lead to greater suffering. 
cultivating of the culti- cultivating these qualities not only leads to greater happiness and well-being, but also leads to that greater sensitivity that allows us to um, make it obvious, natural, to let go of what is extraneous, not needed. Let go of uh, this even the subtlest clinging we have. So, the Buddha teaches this Dharma, quote six, for the elimination of all standpoints, decisions, obsessions, adherences, and underlying tendencies, for the stilling of all formations, for the relinquishing of all attachments, for the destruction of craving, for dispassion, for cessation, for Nibbana. So again, here's another, this is what he's teaching, teaching a Dharma for this purpose, for this inner change, this inner changing the causal stream of what goes on. Elimination of all standpoints. There's a, uh, in Buddhism, history of Buddhism, and especially in the emptiness traditions, a big emphasis sometimes on uh, not having any views, not having any belief systems, not having any philosophy, not relying on any points of view. And it isn't because it's nihilistic, but rather holding on and clinging to views is one of the sources of suffering. And the letting go of that clinging, that holding, that orienting, that activity of the mind that has a view. Having a view is an activity that the mind does. If the mind wants to become really peaceful, it it needs to let go of that activity. If it keeps looking at the world through a point of view, it can't really be be at peace in the world. It doesn't mean the standpoint is wrong, but the elimination of all standpoints, decision, obsessions, underlying tendencies, distilling of all formations, very important term, the the stilling, the quieting, the bringing to peace, the cessation of uh, the quieting of all the extraneous mental activities that keep us churning and going and activated and going. And maybe as we'll see later, the most important Mahayana philosopher of uh, emptiness, so-called philosopher of emptiness is Nagarjuna. And that was one of his main agendas, was the stilling of all formations. All these mental formations, mental activity, extraneous mental activities. Um, so, um, if I may, again, tell, read another story. Apologize to philosophers and scholars. They say in these kind of fables that Buddhists like to write. I wrote these stories, so I, I'm the one who should apologize. Uh, scholars sometimes get kind of, you know, are not treated with great respect. Or so mostly we feel sorry for them. That's why you can feel sorry for me. A scholar came to the abbess and explained, I have spent a lifetime studying Buddhism and it has not helped me much. What am I missing? What is it I need to understand? To prepare the scholar for her answer, the abbess sat silent for a while. Then she said, breathe in an easy and relaxed way and then study what causes you to lose that ease. Everything you really need to know about about Buddhism will be found in that investigation.
Breathe in an easy and relaxed way and then study what causes you to lose that ease. Everything you really need to know about Buddhism will be found in that investigation. What causes you to lose your ease? And um, so, one of the reasons why this focus on causality works is that our minds, our hearts, are not things, fixed things, but rather they're processes. And this is one of the teachings of early Buddhism, is the mind is not a thing, but a process. It's not a static, stationary, fixed thing. But it's a, it's a series of processes. And processes can be changed, can be modified, can be, can be um, uh, shaped in different ways. And one of the teachings, one of the ideas of emptiness in Buddhism is the idea that nothing has any fixed, stationary, inherent, permanent quality. Because if it did, you couldn't change it. And if suffering is fixed and permanent and stable and you're just born with it, that's how the nature of the universe is for you to suffer, then you can't do much about it. Except perhaps what uh, Charlie Brown's father did. Maybe some of you know the story of Linus talking to Charlie. Or Charlie says to Linus, um, oh, so you don't think my father knows much about uh, um, car repair? Well, just the other day, we were driving along and there was this large, loud clanging coming out of the engine. And Linus said, oh, don't tell me. Uh, Your father stopped the car and fixed it. Charlie said, no. He turned up the radio. (laughs) So because things aren't fixed, we can study and look at, you know, and and shift and change things or free ourselves from the clinging or grasping or tightening around things as if they're fixed, as if we have to hold them in place. This is how it has to be. And one of the really fascinating places that the the teachings of the Buddha are around this fixation, what loses our ease, what causes suffering, um, and the places we kind of get fixated or think think are kind of fixed stationary things is around the idea of self and trying to understand our life from the point of view of myself, the self. Um, uh, And it's very interesting, the Buddha wanted to say that almost any kind of attempt to try to understand your life from the vantage point of the self is gonna lead to suffering. It's a very, very significant kind of challenge to all of us. So the Buddha said, this is how one attends or thinks inappropriately. So listen carefully. This, this, is, this is inappropriate. Inappropriate for what reason? Inappropriate for the purposes of being free of suffering. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What was I in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? 
having been what, what shall I be in the future? Or else one is inwardly perplexed about the immediate present. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where is it bound? What's left? If you can't ask yourself all those questions, for many people, uh, these are really important questions. Who am I? Discovering who I am. And now the Buddha says, I can't do that. So you're challenged. So that's good. Then he goes on to say, uh, how does one attend appropriately? And he says, this is suffering. This is the origination of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. This is the Four Noble Truths. The idea being here that, that uh, you use a different framework, a different orientation, different reference point for looking at your experience. You don't look at your experience, <clears throat> especially in meditation, from the point of view of self, me, myself, and mine, those categories, but rather something that is arguably much more intimate, much more immediate, less abstract. You look at where's the suffering and how can I let go of that? And this question of what causes you to lose your ease is, a, is to look at that. What is it that causes you to be uneasy? And understand that and look at your contribution in that and understand what is it you can let go of. If things were of a fixed nature, you couldn't be, participate in that process of shifting and changing the process of your inner psychological life. And this is one of the key things about the fluidity of life that goes on. Um, so the emptiness teaching in the early tradition is there in the service of understanding our contribution, our involvement in the causal stream and flow of our life and the process of what's going on. And there are two primary ways that the empty kind of emptiness teaching are taught in this early tradition. And we'll go through them more in the course of this week. But I want to just mention now, uh, kind of begin kind of uh, having you understand this. As I, under, as I read it, as I understand it, um, there are or I say, it's, it's often it's said that Theravada Buddhism has two primary forms of practice. There's insight practice and tranquility practice. Insight practice and concentration practice. And each of those is a practice where you take responsibility or involved with this process of changing this, the process to become freer of suffering. And emptiness comes into place differently in each of these practices or approaches. With the insight practice, Emptiness involves seeing, having insight, that what we experience as ourselves, what we experience as the world, is empty of anything that's worthwhile clinging to, or is empty of self, or anything that pertains to self. Human beings have this tremendous, often tremendous and subtle, sometimes unconscious, activity of finding and attributing and making things into me, myself, and mine, into self. 
And to understand how that's a projection, to understand how that's a construct of the mind, is a very fascinating thing to do. So as I like to say, if, if all of us left the meditation hall now and left with different shoes than we came with, our shoes wouldn't care. The idea that my shoes is not inherent in the shoes, but it's a construct, it's an activity of the mind the mind makes. But, you know, who thinks about that when you go out there and find your shoes are gone, my shoes? But if you really understand it to be a construct, an activity of the mind, and you're interested in not suffering, do you chase after your shoes? Maybe you would, but how do you hold that construct? So, on one hand, there's this insight that fundamentally the shoes are not mine. That's said to be helpful so we don't get constricted or tight around my shoes. Suzuki Roshi said that uh, there's a beautiful photograph of him saying this. He was holding up his glasses like this. And he said to his students, these glasses are not my glasses. But you know about my, you know about my tired old eyes so you allow me to use them. Conventionally, they were his glasses, but he, you know, he had a different attitude. The common attitude is a mine. And he had it more lighter, he held it more lightly. So, part, so the, tranquil, the, the insight approach is to have this insight, to see deeply, and have it be revealed that, that things in a certain way are empty, and therefore let go. The tranquility approach is the approach, or the concentration approach, tranquility approach, is to tranquilize, some people don't like that word, but, uh, but to quiet the mental activities in the mind so the mind becomes more peaceful. Concentration practice is a, mind, is a practice where the, the, more, um, ac- the, uh, the, uh, the more agitated activities of the mind quiet down and we get quieter and quieter and quieter, stiller and stiller. And so the tranquility approach to to emptiness is to empty the mind of its agitation. And you know, you can be conventionally, I mean, an ordinary from ordinary perspective, very very peaceful. But if you're very sensitive, very attentive, you see there's still some agitation going on, and so it's emptying yourself of that agitation. And so, the the emptiness approach for the Tranquility is, to, is this emptying process until the mind experiences a radical emptiness of greed, hate, and delusion. So we'll go into this more. But I wanted to mention this because, uh, again, just to reinforce the idea that in the Theravada tradition, the whole tr- thrust of emptiness teaching is to, is to bring us back to ourselves and what we can do, our approach, what we're doing in our own mind, how we are in relationship to things. And what can we do to help in that process of becoming free and liberated? It's not about coming to some ultimate, true, philosophical point of view about the nature of the universe and now I know how it is. You might come to that in some way, but that's not the purpose. The purpose is to understand so that we can do this inner process of liberation and freedom. So I hope that made some sense as an introduction to this week. Um, so, I think, um, 
we have some time now for some discussion. And um, so if you're ready for that, if you have questions or comments or protests, and if you could please uh, use the mic so we can all hear. Appreciate it. So. This is a quick one. On quote number seven, the, we didn't cite the source. Oh, I'm sorry. This was a, a, a um, typo on my part. I was the one who added all the numbers to make it easier to refer to. And I guess because they were divided up over two pages, Got it. I, I ended up putting numbers on seven and eight, whereas they're, they're all both part of the same quote. So you can write, you can just make, I don't know what you want to do. But seven and eight have the same source. So yes. I, yeah. Um, just to follow up on the last piece you said. Mm. Um, I'm wondering if there's, or what is the thought around having the realization that everything is empty and then bringing that back to the practice versus the opposite is is what I heard you say in the Theravadan tradition. If I I understand you, it's fine to see that everything is empty. There's a, it can be a very beautiful, deep insight that happens. Um, and then, uh, if it's a genuine insight, uh, one, of the, one of the things you can do is to begin studying, pay, pay attention, uh, to when you don't treat things as being empty. To notice when you start holding on or grabbing. Uh, is, you know, it's one thing to see. It's another thing to stay open and relaxed. It's one thing to... to, to um, it's one thing to... Um, to be aware, it's another thing to cling to what you're aware to. So, as you see everything is empty, that can help your study, your investigation of your own clinging and lack of clinging. And if that helps you understand that there's no clinging here or nothing to cling to, um, then just uh, maybe just rest content. But if it helps show you where there's still some clinging, some subtle way in which you don't quite, you're still reacting to things then you have more work to do. Maybe you haven't seen how empty, you know, that everything's empty. You've seen most things, but... So, for example, if people can see that everything's empty, um, except for the one who knows. And so then, you know, to turn around and look at the one who knows, and uh, it might take a while. Or sometimes everything is empty, and because of it, it see, people, it's very, sometimes it's very frightening for people to see that things are, everything is empty in a particular way, in the way we're talk, going to talk about this week. Um, and uh, it can be frightening because it's so different than how we usually understand our life and how to be safe in our life. And uh, so people get afraid and then sometimes it's interesting then to turn the attention around and look at the fear because the fear hasn't been seen as empty. And then if you look the fear right in the eye and see that's empty too, then what's the problem? So is this addressing your question or do you want to ask it a different way? It is and... um 
I guess where I feel confused is the Theravadan approach of what I'm hearing inquiry uh, versus the other doorway for me has been to realize that everything is empty and I'm not sure what the uh, the substance is in terms of the Theravadan approach. Well, probably your your approach is you know which is you know quite compatible with the Theravadan approach. Um, you know the the, the um, um, generally in Theravada emptiness is not taught like we're doing here. Uh, so, you know it's, it's not like a philosophy, a point of view that you're you know you come you know, introduction to Buddhism, uh, you know introduction to mindfulness six week course. Let me teach you about mind, you know, emptiness. But rather, emptiness is something that gets that reveals itself to you, to a practitioner when the practice becomes strong, and then uh, in its own time, it becomes obvious that everything is, in a particular way, is kind of empty. And so, the tendency in Theravada is to wait until the practitioner is ready to see uh, the emptiness when it stands out. And so, it can seem sometimes in Theravada we don't have so much emptiness teaching because we don't talk about it as freely, as openly as the Mahayana do, does. But it's there, but we just wait until it reveals itself in practice. And then it can, it can be really clear that there is, things are empty. And so maybe you've come to that point where you see that, and that's beautiful. Um, and then, uh, uh, you know, to stabilize in that view, or to take that understanding, there is what brought you there, the practice brought you there, and make it more thorough. Are there subtle, subtle, subtle ways in which you're still not seeing everything as empty. What is it's left? That's still, what activity of the mind, there's still some moving towards, moving away from, even in that place. And so that, then the practice can continue. But I like to think of, you know, that uh, for myself, that um, the insight into emptiness in our tradition is not something you're told to look for, but it's something that gets revealed as the practice matures. And in fact, if you look at some of the great commentators of our tradition, Theravada tradition, like Buddha Gosha, uh, he has a lot to say about emptiness in his big book, The Path of Purification. But it's buried far into the book. No one, ever, you know, most people, you know, get beyond the first 20 pages of his big book. And but if you get into page like 400, <laughs> and he talks about some of the deeper stages of vipassana meditation, that's where he talks about seeing emptiness. Is this making some sense to you, or am I missing you? No, it, it's very clear. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I have one more question, but I'm wondering if I should just pass it on. Right. Well, there's a lot of eager hands, okay. so maybe if it's okay, we can give someone else a chance. Okay. Um, four foundations of mindfulness, they speak of... Um, well, the word that's usually translated as mindfulness, or one of the words, also has a connotation of remembering our purpose, yes, or some type of memory. And yet, this other quote, or some of the way that mindfulness is spoken of, it seems to almost imply that we should have a type of amnesia, um, never think of the past or future, that sort of thing. There's a story in here. <laughs> if I may, is it okay? I don't know if I can find it. 
Oh, here it is. A mother of young children came to the abbess and said, a traveling teacher recently taught that all our difficulties will go away if we would be fully in the present moment. This can't be right. I watch my children, and so often they are too much in the present moment. When it is time for school, they don't get ready because they're absorbed in what they are playing in the moment. When I walk them to school, they stop to enjoy the flowers, bugs, sticks, and rocks they find along the way. My kids need to learn something else besides being in the moment. Otherwise, I can't manage my job as a parent. The abbess replied, It is unfortunate that some Buddhist teachers overemphasize the present moment. It is, as, it is as if the present moment is their Buddhist god. It's true the present moment is the wellspring of all things good. However, if we aren't careful, it can also be the wellsprings of all things ill. The point of Buddhism is not to be in the present moment. The practice is to be aware of the present moment enough so you can change, so we can address our clingings as they are occurring. Your, your kids know how to be present, but they are not old enough to notice how they get attached. As they get older, they will become less focused on their present moment experience. And if they are taught well, they will simultaneously become more and more aware of how they cling. Peace is found through not clinging. <clears throat> so, you know, mindfulness is sometimes taught as being fully present, and so maybe there's no room for the past and the future. They, um, but it's possible to think about the past, think about the future, and be acutely aware that you're, that's happening in the present moment. And so it allows us to possibly be present and think about the past and the future. Also, there's a difference between the kind of a, different kinds of attention is appropriate for different settings and times. If you're sitting in meditation, it might at some point be completely appropriate to let go of all thoughts of past and future. However, to get to Spirit Rock, to retreat, to be fully in the present moment, required a certain degree of planning thinking ahead. That planning and thinking ahead is a fine thing to do. It can be a fine thing to do and appropriate. It's part of life. But hopefully we do it attentive to, am I, as I'm planning to go to Spirit Rock, am I suffering, am I clinging, or am I not? I can well imagine that some people, none of you of course, uh, had some suffering, clinging, involved in coming to Spirit Rock. This is really important, I better get in. You know, they better let me in. I've been around for a long time. This is the retreat that's going to really save me. And if I don't get in, I'll be so disappointed. It'll be like, you know, I didn't get the secret teaching. And there's, you know, so much, you know, the pl so much tightening that went around the planning. Or it could be, you know, I think this would be a great thing. It'd probably be helpful. Maybe it'll help me understand more deeply. It's okay if I don't go, but I think it might be helpful, so I'll sign up. So there are times for planning, it's time for remembering the past and learning from the past, and there's time to know how to let go of it. Is, does that satisfy you as an answer? I'm, I'm getting it. You're getting it. <laughs> I want you all to be satisfied with my answers. <laughs> yeah, I, I think my question follows up on that. Um, sometimes I feel uh, that we are children without parents, so, you know, when we look at um, quote number five, 
which is somewhat, it seems like an evaluative idea of constantly checking in and evaluating how we're showing up and uh, our actions. But, um, you know, for a deluded mind, um, it seems that you would uh, maybe not see these things very clearly. And so I'm kind of wondering if you're, if you're, how does the deluded mind train itself, I guess is my question. It's a great question. The, um, probably by keeping it really simple and finding a really simple guideline that you, it's easy to notice, easy to pay attention to and find your way with. And um, it might be as simple as uh, noticing when you're relaxed and when you're not. And then find, have enough confidence uh, that it's worthwhile to, to keep looking at that and keep relaxing no matter what. It doesn't mean you don't do other things as well, take care of life and all that. But to keep using just that, that as a reference point, maybe a deluded mind can use that as something that there's some clarity around it. Hopefully you know the difference. A deluded mind can notice when that mind is stressed and when it's not. And if you can't notice that, then don't be stressed about that. Uh, you didn't talk about quote number nine, and um, I, I read that, and I'm a little, con- I'm confused by it. And it talks about different forms of conceiving, and then it says at the end, by overcoming all conceiving, uh, one is called a sage at peace, and there are examples of certain things that are considered conceiving, but, you know, if, but for example, if one says, I shall be... I won't be a clinging person. Um, that would probably be considered a conceiving here too. I just don't, I don't understand what it means by overcoming all conceiving. Yeah, I'm not sure either. But uh, the um, uh, few things that come to mind. Uh, one is that I think all the all the quotes here have to do with I, and so it's possible to experience one's life without referring to the agent that's here. I mean, conventionally, you know, it's, it's fine to say, I'm, I'm the one who's sitting up here, I'm the one who's answering the questions, and that's okay. But um, I can get self-conscious about, you know, I'm the one who's answering the questions, I better have a great answer for you, and, you know, what do people think about me? And I can get tripped up in the self-consciousness of it if I focus too much on that me. If you have a, a great uh, athlete, say a great basketball player, it's a championship game, and it's the last four seconds of the game and the two teams are tied and the player is dribbling the ball down the court and suddenly it occurs to the player, um, who am I? What am I? What shall I be? <laughs> you know, that's the wrong time for that kind of question. It just, it just becomes wind drag. It just, you know, trips the person up. It's possible, you know, that's not that, you know, it's not necessary to have that kind of questioning when what you're focusing on is making that last shot, you know, and, Right? So, so that, that, that the activity of, of having concepts around self, when self is a construct, 
uh, it's a you know it's a useful construct to have, but it's still a construct and idea, and it's possible to experience our life without that idea. And the idea, any idea that the mind is actively involved in using, the mind is not real to that degree is not at peace. And and possibly not at peace a lot because the I idea comes with a lot of other baggage. It's not an innocent thing; it's just there by itself. Cultural, familial experience, you know, our personal history ideas of self. And so, what it's like? What is it like to just be present here, aware, without a location for the awareness? Without a, 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 I'm here and you're there. There's awareness. that doesn't need to have a reference of I or you. I can still operate kind of a way there's I or you, but I'm not actively thinking that way. There's something else going on here, a wide field of awareness that can feel like a wide field or pool. And so, but as soon as I say I and get involved in these ideas of um, I shall be, I shall not be, then we're involved in ideas that divides up the world, constructs the world, that are not really needed for the purpose of being at peace. And so you find a lot of language like this in the early teachings um, that, th- that are very challenging to many of the kind of uh, uh, many um, important spiritual ideas that many people adhere to. Uh, so ideas of like, I am one with the universe. The Buddha said, that's a conceiving, that's not you're not going to be free from that. With, with that kind of idea, you're not going to be free. I am separate from the universe. You're not going to be free. Um, I am within this universe. I am within this body. I, you know, I'm apart from the body. I'm part of this universe. I'm, you know, all the kind, anything that's conceived, conceived from the point of view of I keeps the mind active, caught, dividing up something which can be undivided. Is it making some sense? Doesn't make too much sense to me, but it's my best I can do. Um, I have a couple of questions. I'll keep them to the point. So the first one is regarding um, how you were talking about in Theravada. Uh, there are two areas in which um, emptiness comes in: mindfulness and tranquility. And if I can quote back what you said um, regarding the second point uh, about tranquility and emptiness: um, empty, empty the mind from agitation until the mind experiences a radical. Emptiness of greed, hatred, and delusion. And um, a clarification on that I wanted to ask her, and that is, um, I'm assuming that would, that would be a temporary or momentary uh, emptiness of, of these uh, causes, um, like um, uh, temporary nibbana, uh, as, as tranquility would be a vehicle to, to achieve that, empt- that emptiness of the the hindrances in the momentary when and after the tranquility and, and the concentration dies down, of course they come back. Um, so I wanted to clarify, is, is, is that the way in which uh, emptiness sh- shows up there or did you have something more permanent in mind? Well, the, the, the radical emptiness of greed, hate and delusion is, is considered to be synonymous with Nibbana, mm-hmm. awakening. And generally in this tradition, um, uh, you know, it's it's possible to have the you know the Big Bang thing, where 
you have a, you know have a dramatic experience of that, and the greed, hate, and delusion never comes back. Um, I don't know anybody that's ever happened to. It's uh, the usual idea in our tradition is that it's a gradual process where the experience can be dramatic and total for a moment or for a short time, um, and that hopefully has changed. Uh, has uh, uh, changed the person in some fundamental way, but not so fundamentally that there's not still a tendency to cling to certain things. Um, maybe things have been lessened, maybe certain things you're no longer clinging to. And so then um, that radical experience of radical cessation of greed, hate, and delusion has shown a person a possibility, has shown a person an alternative way of being that maybe is inconceivable before it's happened. And from, that, and from that pointing out of this new way, other way than mind can be, it changes our relationship to the whole existing world that we're in, that we come back to. Um, and so our relationship, our understanding changes. So for example, if the relational world, the world of getting things and wanting things and reacting to things and having things is the only world we know, then it makes sense to manipulate and fix and try to fix the world so to make us happy. But if you learn there's a radical kind of happiness and well-being and peace that's independent of how the conditions of the world are, that come when the mind has this deep peace of freedom, greed, hate, and illusion, then you're not going to put all your eggs in the relational basket. You're not going to put all your eggs in the fixing the world basket. And you realize there's another possibility for being, being free. And that's a phenomenal lesson to have experientially and dramatically for oneself. And it changes, and so this then, once you've had that experience, for many people it tends to then um, help, a dramatic, help a lot with beginning to relax or let go of. And for most people then it's a gradual process of letting go of more and more of that which is not needed. But there's a lot more confidence in letting go. And then slowly over time, as people mature, it's a gradual approach, um, and, uh, and as people mature and grow, uh, there's less and less clinging. And, and ideally, in our tradition, at some point, the, the emptying of greed, hate, and delusion is permanent. And that would be nice. Is, is that an answer that works for you? It does, thank you. Oh, it's time to stop. Um, let's see. Here. Oh, someone has the mic. Okay, the last one. You, you talked about the origin of suffering as you talked about it at the Buddhist time. It said that we are the heir to our own karma. So if we look at our karmic tendencies from previous existence, is that a form of predeterminism for our suffering? Uh, with the Buddha, it can be, and some people saw it that way. So that... Uh, that uh, because of our past actions, what happens, to the, uh, what happens to us now is inevitable. So it's kind of predetermined because of the past. And we just, you know, that's how it's going to be. The Buddha clearly uh, indicated otherwise. Uh, and he said that if that was the case, then there would be no spiritual life. There would be no engagement in the path to liberation. That, um, that things are not, because of our past actions, they're not fixed and in, inevitably fixed that this, they're going to unfold a particular way. That we can have a role and changing that stream to a certain degree. And if we, we, if we, we couldn't do that, then there'd be no freedom. And, and that's what you know, Buddhism is about, is finding 
where we contribute, what our contribution is, where we can insert ourselves into that stream of karma so that we can make a difference to the unfolding of it. The ending of karma. So, um, so I hope this sets the stage for some more, more uh, to what's going to happen here the next while. I hope that this doesn't, having all this talking uh, and teaching doesn't, uh, you know, stir you up too much. It's okay to be stirred up if it's reflective and get, engages you in a deep way. But I also hope that um, it serves your process of investigating the intimacy of, and the immediacy of here and how you are here. And one of the reasons I read the story about the ease, you know, breathe in an easy way or walk in an easy way. Be easy. Set yourself at ease to some modicum of ease, whatever you can. And then notice what takes you away from that. Just very simply, what takes you away? It could be as simple as getting up from here and you see there's several people heading for the door at the same time and you lose your ease because you don't want to wait while those people walk through. You tighten up and you kind of speed, speed up to be the first one out the door. It, it can be very innocent, very simple, very subtle, but they're very subtle reaction to the other people going out the door where you've lost some of your ease that you had. Or you're standing in line for the bathroom. Probably it's going to be a long, long line after this. And, um, and so you're easy here but then you start getting impatient, standing at the line. This is not important, you know. I need to get to the walking meditation. That's where the real practice is. Don't they realize how important it is for me to really get into the practice and get started and get concentrated? And, you know, how am I going to get anything out of this retreat if I get, can't get to my walking time? And so you're standing there at line and you've lost your ease. Why? What's going on? To investigate that. And look and see at those movements where you lose your ease. See what your contribution is. See what you can do. See how you are. See if there's some role that you can play to discover ease, even when you're uneasy. So that's what I encourage you, a way of keeping it intimate and immediate and stay present as we go forward here. So, um, again, uh, the original schedule for the overall retreat was changed a little bit for today. Um, and so there is... Um, 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 you know, in the af- late afternoon there's a 3.45 sit, a 4.30 sit, a walk, and a 5 o'clock sit. And the schedule for today does say uh, group interview groups today, but they don't start until tomorrow, the, the interviews. So um, don't be looking for them today. Just today's a walking period at 3 o'clock. So enjoy your walking time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.